Hej, and welcome to the history of Denmark. Episode 13, Almighty Lady and Mistress. Hello everyone. Since it has been four weeks since we left off, I think we should just recap what happened in the last episode. The power of the King of Denmark took a nosedive during the reigns of Eric Menville and his brother Christopher II, as well as the young puppet Valdemar III. There was even a period of eight years between 1332 and 1340 when Denmark had no king at all. All of this was caused by Eric Menville relying on expensive mercenaries, which resulted in the practice of pawning off more and more lands and castles within Denmark to the two German counts, Johann and Gerhard. Their iron grip on the country was only relieved when the minor noble Nils Ebbesen assassinated Count Gerhard and rose in revolt against the German occupation. Although he was eventually defeated, his uprising allowed the young Valdemar IV to reclaim the throne of Denmark. He then spent 20 years consolidating and expanding his power by gradually buying back lands from the Germans and waging war against those who could not be negotiated with. In order to raise funds, he was forced to sell the Duchy of Estonia to the Teutonic Order. During the reign of Valdemar IV, Denmark was struck by the Black Death, killing around a third of the population and forcing the king to reform the agricultural system. These reforms were met with several revolts by rich farmers, but they were crushed each time. Peace was forced upon the land with the Charter of the King's Peace in 1360. With his domestic affairs settled, Valdemar turned towards Sweden, where he masterfully exploited the conflict between King Maunus Eriksson and his son. Valdemar invaded and retook Scania, Halland and Blekinge, and went even further, conquering the important islands of Öland and Gotland. In order to take Visby, the largest city on Gotland, Valdemar had to defeat the assembled peasant army in the Battle of Visby. He then held the city for ransom and received many riches. As he sailed away, however, he was faced with a new challenge. The newly formed Hanseatic League, an alliance of merchant cities in northern Europe, of which Visby was a member, declared war on the Danish king and sent their fleet from Lübeck into the Sound in 1362. Although he managed to defeat this expedition, it was far from the end of the conflict, as we shall see in this episode. Moreover, the island of Gotland immediately rebelled, and it would have to be reoccupied. With the attack repelled for the moment, the main issue for the time was the marriage of Valdemar's daughter Margaret to the Norwegian king Håkon VI. Under Magnus Eriksson, Sweden and Norway had been united, but Magnus was deposed by his nephew, who became King Albrecht of Sweden. Norway thus passed to Magnus' son Håkon. The marriage had the potential to unite Norway and Denmark, so the Hanseatic League and Sweden did everything in their power to disrupt the arrangement. They pushed for Håkon to marry Elisabeth of Holstein, and even went so far as to hold a marriage ceremony between Elisabeth and a stand-in for Håkon. While on her way to Norway by ship, however, Elizabeth was captured by the Archbishop of Lund, who kept her imprisoned until an agreement could be reached between Valdemar and Håkon. Margaret was married to the Norwegian king on the 9th of April, 1363. 
As I mentioned last time, this marriage was especially important because Valdemar's only son, Christopher, died in that same year. He would therefore have to choose one of his daughter's sons as a successor. I realize now that I accidentally said nephews in episode 12, but I of course meant grandsons. Now, the replacement of Magnus Eriksson with Albrecht of Mecklenburg as King of Sweden meant that the anti-Danish alliance broke down for the moment. There were too many squabbles to effectively threaten Denmark. Valdemar used the breathing room to reoccupy Gotland with his new Norwegian reinforcements. The war with the Hanseatic League continued on paper for two years, and the following peace was short-lasted. The big showdown began in 1368. The coalition of Mecklenburg, Holstein, Sweden and the Hanseatic League all declared war on Denmark with the intention of dividing the country between them. The fleet of Mecklenburg and the Hansa forced Copenhagen and many other cities in the Sound to surrender. Albrecht of Sweden sent an army into Scania and Holstein attacked and occupied the southern cities of Ribe, Ranas and Aalborg. This caused the old conflict with the rich peasants of Jutland to flare up and Valdemar now faced enemies on all fronts. After two years, he decided to cut his losses and try to negotiate a separate peace with the Hanseatic League in order to divide his enemies. The peace treaty was signed in Stralsund in Mecklenburg in 1370. The Hansa would gain partial control of the Scanian herring market for 15 years, as well as nominal rule of the province of Scania. Two-thirds of the revenue would go to the League, while the last third would still belong to Valdemar. However, the castles in Scania were still garrisoned by Valdemar's men, and so the door was left open for him to regain control of the area. The German merchants were also given more privileges, and could henceforth trade more freely in Scania. While it may seem like a big loss, there was also a silver lining to this arrangement. Now that the Hansa had established their own peace treaty with Denmark and gained partial rulership of Scania, the Swedes were denied the chance to conquer this wealthy province. The interests of the Hanseatic League and Denmark were now aligned, and thus Sweden was alienated. The king had more success on his southern front. Duke Valdemar of Schleswig, the former puppet king Valdemar III, had died in the year 1364. His son Henry followed him as duke, but he was a weak ruler, and so sought help from Valdemar to fight off Holstein. Furthermore, Henry's mother, Ricardis, named Valdemar as her protector. This gave him the formal right to negotiate on her behalf, and he utilized this by sending troops to conquer Flensburg in 1373. After this, peace was made with Holstein and the rebelling peasants of Jutland, and they were forced to pay fines and hand over stolen goods. A part of the reason for the conflict between Holstein and the Duke of Schleswig was that many of the castles in Schleswig had been sold off to the nobles of Holstein. Duke Henry transferred the right to negotiate in this matter to King Valdemar shortly before the death of the Duke. Henry's widow also named Valdemar as her protector, just like the mother of Henry had done. The king would therefore be able to buy back the castles in Schleswig from Holstein when the finances permitted him to do so. This would not come to be, however, because Valdemar IV died in the same year as Duke Henry, 1375. With the death of this duke, 
the House of Abel, which had ruled the Duchy of Schleswig since Christopher I took over from his brother Abel as King of Denmark, had died out. The Duchy would now be claimed by the House of Schauenburg, which was based in Holstein. Valdemar Erde had ruled Denmark since 1340, an impressive 35 years in total. During his reign, he managed to restore the power of the crown by reconquering lost Danish territory and uniting the realm. After consolidating his power, he took Scania, Halland and Blekinge from Sweden and conquered Öland and Gotland. By marrying off his daughter Margaret to Håkon of Norway, he secured a strong alliance between the two realms. Unfortunately, the Hanseatic League proved a formidable opponent for Valdemar, but he managed to make the best of the war in 1368 by manipulating the outcome so that the League would have an interest in opposing Sweden. He had led an interesting life, growing up in the imperial German court, traveling to the Holy Land, as well as meeting with the Pope in Avignon. Overall, I would say he was a great king if you judge him on whether or not he left the country in a better state than he found it. By laying the groundwork for his daughter Margaret, he truly brought a new dawn to Denmark, like his epithet suggests. If you go to the website, you can see a fresco from St. Peter's Church, which is a medieval brick cathedral in Nestville. The fresco in question is the most famous depiction of Valdemar IV. He is seen kneeling with his wife before God and the crucified Jesus. The Latin inscription at his side notes the day of his death and says that he rests in Christ. I mentioned a few times already that succession was a tricky question in 1375. The Danish nobles wanted the five-year-old son of Håkon and Margaret, Olaf, to succeed Valdemar. Technically, the son of Margaret's sister Ingeborg had a better claim, since Ingeborg was the elder sibling, but he was an unpopular candidate due to his father being the Duke of Mecklenburg. The Hanseatic League also had a say in who became the next Danish king, due to the nature of their peace treaty with Valdemar. They chose to stay silent on the issue, however, and let the Danish nobles elect Olaf. This was because they too did not want to further empower Mecklenburg, which would rule over both Sweden and Denmark should Ingeborg's son be elected. Thus, the young Olaf became Olaf II of Denmark, succeeding his grandfather Valdemar. As you may recall, Olaf I was also called Olaf Hunger. He was one of the sons of Svein Estrusson and reigned in the latter years of the 11th century. Anyway, Olaf's parents, Margaret and Håkon, were his co-regents. One of their first acts was to call a Dane court in 1376, where the traditional promise of holding yearly Dane courts was made. Furthermore, the harsh conditions placed on the peasants by Valdemar were rolled back. They would no longer be forced to work on the royal castles to the same degree, and there would be no further taxes placed on them. The nobles of Jutland and Funen also demanded more autonomy if they were to support Olaf as king, and they were granted this privilege. The following summer, in 1377, a huge Dane court with 139 participants was held. The most impressive achievement of this event was that Olaf and his parents had their position as upholders of order and peace in Denmark confirmed. We actually have a document from this monumental event which gives insight into the political system of Denmark in the late 1300s. 
It is a response from the Crown to the Council of Nobles with 24 articles. The most important topics mentioned by this source are a specification on the distribution of privileges, a number of decisions introduced by Olaf's charter the year before, some important current events, and lastly, the only surviving definition of the offices of Trost, Mask, Gelker and Chancellor. Let us look at a few of the articles in the document. Article 2 states, quote, Anyone in the realm who has privileges, either churches or monasteries, knights or squires, city dwellers or peasants, may renew these free of charge and shall not buy them. But if someone does not have privileges and wishes to acquire them for the first time, then they must be bought from the king. Article 21 states, quote, Similarly, of the authority of the Drost, the following is said, that he shall rule the realm in the absence of the king, install and depose civil servants and bailiffs, collect the royal taxes and judge all appealed cases in the name of the king, as if he were present himself. So as you can hear, we learn from Article 21 that the Drost is the second in command and is also responsible for tax collection. I suppose you can think of this office as the Prime Minister. In similar articles, we learn that Mask, which can be translated as Marshal, is responsible for leading the troops in war on behalf of the king, and that he has the right to a suitable tract of land. Also, Gelka is a special office which can be described as the governor of the province of Scania. His duties are described in the same terms as those of the Drost, but it is mentioned that he answers to the Drost and not directly to the king. Lastly, the job of the Chancellor is to take care of church matters, as well as making copies of decrees and laws, and handle the King's letters. After the Dane Court of 1377, the new administration had to set the agenda. Valdemar Atterday's final goal of standing up to the influence of Holstein in Schleswig was abandoned. The new objective was securing Scania and countering the influence of the Mecklenburgians. The Duchy of Schleswig was therefore handed over to the Holsteinians without a fight. The Hansa was appeased by unconditionally renewing their training rights in Denmark and Norway, as well as their special privilege in regards to the Scanian herring market. But later in the year 1376, a fleet from Mecklenburg arrived to attack Copenhagen. The new Danish regime was forced to swear that the election of Olaf was only temporary, and that the Mecklenburgian claim would be recognized. Satisfied that they had managed to make their demands without needing to use force, the fleet sailed home. However, the new regime had no intention of letting the Mecklenburgians take the throne. When Håkon VI of Norway died young in 1380, Olaf became Olaf IV of Norway as well, and his mother Margaret seamlessly claimed the regency. Her next action shows clearly that she had plans for Denmark, and submission to the Hanseatic League or Mecklenburg was not a part of these plans. When the League asked Margaret to renew their rights in Norway, she responded by saying that since these rights had been given by her husband four years before, they had died with him. Thus, the question of Hanseatic influence in Norway was left hanging, giving Margaret an important bargaining chip when the 15-year agreement between Denmark and the Hansa over the Scanian Herod market expired. The Hanseatic League did not think that they had gotten enough out of the deal, for two reasons. 
Firstly, widespread piracy in the Sound had led to the loss of many Hanseatic goods over the years, and the League accused Margaret of supporting or ignoring the pirates. Secondly, the mayor of Stralsund, who was a member of the League, claimed that Denmark owed him money because he had invested in one of the Scanian castles. Faced with these demands 15 years after her father Valdemar had signed the peace treaty, Margaret masterfully deduced that the Hansa would not press the issue by waging a costly war against Denmark. The merchant cities were convinced to cover the mayor's debt themselves, and they returned ownership of Scania and the herring market fully to the Danish crown. Shortly after this, the piracy in the Sound strangely came to an end. If you would like to see a fresco from 1380, which depicts one of these pirate ships that Margaret may or may not have supported, please go to the website. In the year 1386, Olaf II came of age, and as the last remaining relative of his grandfather Magnus Eriksson, he laid claim to the Kingdom of Sweden. Mother and son were in luck because a fortunate series of events in Sweden led to the arrival of a delegation from the Kingdom with promising news. What had happened was that an especially powerful noble named Bo Jonsson Grip had died. He had the title of Trost in Sweden, which, as we covered, is sort of like a prime minister. His lands accounted for around half of all the estates in Sweden, which he possessed either as his private property or as rented domains from the crown. Upon his death, a council of nobles, who had been appointed to administrate these vast estates after the death of Grip, was probably worried that King Albrecht would seize their property. They therefore secretly approached Olaf and his mother with an invitation to invade Sweden and replace Albrecht as king. In return, the Danes would merely be required to let the Council of Swedish nobles keep the property they had acquired from the deceased Trost. The offer was perfect for Margaret and Olaf, and they accepted, spending 1387 preparing their demands for Albrecht of Sweden. But suddenly, on the 3rd of August in that year, disaster struck Denmark. Olaf II died of unknown causes, 16 years old. The Mecklenburgians of course jumped at the chance and proclaimed that Albrecht of Sweden was the rightful heir of Olaf as King of Denmark. Just to recap the familial connection here, Olaf's father was Håkon VI, who was the son of Magnus Eriksson, the King of Sweden. Albrecht of Sweden's mother was the sister of Magnus Eriksson, so Olaf was the grandson of Magnus, while Albrecht was a nephew. Therefore, following the family tree back to Magnus Eriksson, the male heir of Olaf was Albrecht. In Norway, succession worked a bit differently, but the Mecklenburgians nonetheless claimed that they had the correct successor. Maybe that was true in the legal sense, but Margaret, as always, had her own plans. Seven days after the death of her son, a grand assembly was held in Lund in Scania, where she quickly settled a deal with representatives from all over the realm. Margaret would stay as regent until an heir could be found, letting her stave off any claims from the House of Mecklenburg. Let me read an excerpt from the proclamation which was the result of this assembly. Quote, we, together with many more nobles of Denmark, such as archbishops, bishops, knights, squires, and even more of the nobles of the realm and ordinary people from all the parts of Denmark, chose, found, and designated the Honorable Lordess and Lady Margaret, Queen of Norway and Sweden, as Almighty Lady, 
as mistress and as the guardian of the whole realm of Denmark in all aspects. Similarly, in Norway, a way was found to circumvent the Mecklenburgian claim. A council was held in which it was decided that since the House of Mecklenburg was a traditional enemy of Norway, the correct line of succession went through Margaret's sister Ingeborg and passed down to her grandson, the six-year-old Bugislav of Pomerania. He was sent to his grand-aunt and crowned as King of Norway in 1389, and was proclaimed the heir of his distant relative, Olaf II. His name was also changed from the Wendish Bugislav to the more Nordic-sounding Eric. The deal with the Swedish nobles was still on. The only thing that remained was to conquer Sweden from Elbrecht. According to medieval historian Lars Olof Larsson, the Dano-Swedish army consisted of around 1,500 men, while the army of King Albrecht consisted of around 1,000 German mercenaries. These may seem like small forces, but remember that it was not long ago at this time that plague had devastated Europe. The Danish army had split up and besieged a few Swedish towns, but when news arrived that Albrecht had arrived with his German troops, the army reunited at the small city of Osle. The Danes had the advantage not only in terms of numbers, but also due to the fact that they had chosen the battleground. Their flanks were protected on one side by a swamp and on the other by a small settlement. We do not know much about the following battle, but a later chronicler from Lübeck named Dittmar describes it as follows. And when he says the king, he means Albrecht of Sweden. Quote, the king was so eager to fight and was so hasty that not all of his men had time to prepare. When it came to actual fighting, he won the first engagement and split two enemy divisions. But his success was short-lived, and the king lost the battle with all the lords and knights who were in the fight, except those who fled. In particular, there was one named Geert Scharkenburg, and he fled on his first day as a knight. He took with him sixty other knights, and that was the most important reason that the battle was lost." End quote. King Albrecht and his son Eric and many other important nobles were captured and imprisoned. Traditionally, the defeat of Albrecht is explained by pointing to the terrain. The claim is that the horses of the German knights sank into the swamp and were unable to get free. This claim is complete fabrication according to the historian Lars Olaf Larsson, however. Some of the nobles were allowed to ransom themselves, but Albrecht and his son were brought to Scania where they were imprisoned. After the Battle of Osle, only Stockholm resisted the army of Margaret and her son. The city had a significant German population and was run by Mecklenburgian relatives of Albrecht. The Danish army moved north and besieged the city, but it received unexpected help. The Duchy of Mecklenburg had passed to Albrecht himself in 1384, and so it was closely allied with the last Swedish holdout. Stockholm was supplied by sea by the so-called Victual Brothers. This was a loosely organized band of privateers who operated in the North and Baltic Sea in the last part of the 1300s. Their name comes from the Latin Victualia, which means provisions. They attacked trading ships and stole their cargo, and were thus able to keep Stockholm going. They had safe harbors in Mecklenburg, and, at the height of their power in 1394, they controlled Gotland. 
their harassment of merchant ships led to the breakdown of trade in the region, which led to the involvement of the Hanseatic League in the conflict. The Hansa stepped in as peace negotiators and called for the parties to meet at the castle of Lindholm in Scania, where Albrecht had been held prisoner since the Battle of Oslo six years before. The peace agreement of 1395 was made on Margaret's terms. Albrecht had to pay an incredible 60,000 silver marks to her within three years. In the meantime, the Hanseatic League would put forward the money, but they would receive the overlordship of Stockholm in return. If Albrecht could not pay the money when the three years expired, he would have to either accept imprisonment once more or hand over Stockholm to Margaret. With this agreement in place, it was only a matter of time before Margaret would be the undisputed ruler of the entire Nordic region. While she waited for the three years to transpire, the Queen Mother kept busy. In 1396, she introduced a regulation which survives to this day. Its area of jurisdiction was Jutland, but it can be assumed that similar regulations were made for the other parts of the realm. The document shines light on the strategy Margaret would utilize to diminish the power of the nobility, and it also shows that she had become quite a powerful ruler. Article number 3 forbids the construction of new private castles. Article number 4 demands that all lands which had been lost by the crown since 1368 were to be returned. And finally, in Article 10, she reprimands her civil servants and bailiffs and demands that they take better care of the royal domains and castles. In addition, she decided to introduce a new statewide tax, which would finance the minting of the first Danish coins in 60 years. Also in 1396, Margaret took another huge step by having her son proclaimed as King of Denmark and Sweden. As you recall, he had been King of Norway already since 1389, but now his grand-aunt had paved the way for him to fully claim his other two crowns as well. In 1397, Margaret took the final step. She invited the cream of Nordic nobility, 67 bishops, knights and nobles from Denmark, Norway and Sweden, to Kalmar Castle in southeastern Sweden. Present were also the Archbishop of Lund and the Archbishop of Uppsala. They were gathered to witness the coronation of Eric of Pomerania as king. The two important documents produced at this meeting confirms that the realm Eric would rule was not merely Denmark, Norway and Sweden as separate kingdoms, but a new domain, the Kalmar Union. The meeting is one of the most important events in Nordic history. A vast new empire had been proclaimed. Besides the three Scandinavian countries, Finland, the Orkney Islands, Iceland and a few settlements in Greenland were also now ruled by the same person. The Kalmar Union would last for 126 years, after which Sweden would claim its independence for good. Norway, however, would continue in a personal union with Denmark until 1814, meaning that the coronation of Eric of Pomerania marks the beginning of 417 years of unity between these two countries. In a letter from 1430, Eric describes the flag of his union as a red cross on a field of yellow. On the website you can see a picture of the flag, a map of the territory of the Kalmar Union, a picture of Kalmar Castle where the Union was proclaimed, and two drawings. One depicts the crowning of Eric of Pomerania, and the other is a portrait of Margaret, 
You can also see the fresco of Valdemar Adderday I described earlier. While Margaret was still officially Almighty Lady and Mistress of Denmark, Norway and Sweden, there was not a shadow of doubt that she was Queen. The end of her reign is dated to 1412, the year of her death, even though Eric of Pomerania was crowned in 1397. Owing to her impressive accomplishments, she is rightfully known to history as Margaret I. That was all for today's episode. We have covered the final years of Valdemar Erde's reign and followed his phenomenal daughter, Margaret, through her first 22 years in power. Under her regency, Denmark was united with Norway through her son Olaf. After his death, she named her sister Ingeborg's grandson, the young Bugislav of Pomerania, as her successor. This child would become Erik, king of the Kalmar Union. Her rule has thus far been characterized by impressive diplomacy. She avoided an attack from Mecklenburg in the beginning of her reign, and then called the bluff of the Hanseatic League, after the death of her husband Håkon. She later managed to turn the Hansa into an ally, and secured Sweden for her grandnephew Erik. Join me next time on the History of Denmark podcast, as we look at those two documents produced at the meeting in Kalmar Castle, and continue the remarkable story of Margaret and Erik into the 15th century. Thank you for listening. Thank you.